Hi listeners, Jason here. You may have already heard that the International Standard for Psychological Health and Safety at Work, ISO 45003 2021, has now been released. We are thrilled that we finally have a globally agreed best practice manual for how workplace mental health should be done and that the focus is on risk management and not fruit bowls and yoga. To help fast track your understanding and adoption of the standard, Joelle and myself have been working hard on a free online training course. The ISO 45003 Foundations course features an hour of video content, which will take you through the plan, do, check and act phases of the standard. The training is now live at www.45003.org. Please register and share with your network. On behalf of Joel and myself, we hope that you'll find it really beneficial and this helps you to prevent psychological injuries and improve worker wellbeing in your workplace. And did I mention it was free? Now, on to this episode. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Banshee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? I'm okay, Jason. Feeling a bit tired. Yeah, why yeah. is that? Um, probably just, you know, we've got to the end of term. It's just been, you know, but by the end of term, everybody's a bit tired. Yeah. 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 Uh, I've got my three kids, obviously we took the week off or our school finished a week earlier than, than many other schools. Um, yes. I'm already tired from school holidays though. And there's well, another two yeah, weeks that's, to go. That's a different, a different kind of tired, <laughs> I guess. But um, yeah, at least for me over the school holidays, I only have to get myself up and ready. I don't have to get somebody else up and ready and do the extra driving. Yeah. And yeah. all of that. So um, it's, uh, a bit less on my plate to, to worry about yeah 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 no that's <laughs> that is a good point I usually get out of that myself with my wife taking taking most of the uh the school runs in the morning so. yeah well um I'm glad that you're awake now um, me too yeah because we've yeah. got a, a very cool guest on today so we should probably introduce her in so um what we're going to do is introduce in this person. She has qualifications in psychology and has been consulting to workplaces for 18 years with the majority of that time spent helping organizations understand and effectively manage psychosocial risks. She is now the director within her own business where she is a workplace mental health consultant, speaker, trainer, and mental health program strategist. Welcome to the podcast, Anna Fringer. Hello, Jason and Joella. Lovely to be here. Yeah, lovely to have you. Um, uh, we just missed you in Perth, unfortunately. You were here for the APA conference. It would have been great to have recorded live in the studio. Um, it would have been. But this is next best thing. So glad to have you on. Oh, look, it's a pleasure to be here. And it was a pleasure listening to you, how tired you are with all your children. I'm actually, uh, I don't, I'm not a parent. So um, I'm just going to sit here in my joyous, awake, restful state and um and, and listen to all the pains of end of term. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a term for you, but I'm, I'm going to skip that. So <laughs> that, That's a wise decision. Though, isn't it, Jason? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's not for everyone. <laughs> um, all right, Anna, what do you like to listen to? What do I like to listen to? Mm. As far as podcasts. As far as podcasts. Mm. You know what? 
I like to listen to podcasts that actually help me think differently. Uh, so um, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. I know that's a classic response, but, you know, there's no end to her fa- fabulousness. Um, I'm, I'm, I've got a multitude of podcasts I like to listen to, actually. I'm, I'm not a consistent individual. Like I could be listening to something about food or I can be listening to something about mental health or I could be listening to something about mindfulness, or I could be listening to something about, you know, how to eat and exercise a bit better, which I like to tell myself I need to do, but quite often don't do. So like, like everyone else, I'm a classic human, just a bit of an all-rounder, really. Cool. Good to uh, have a lot of variety, I think. Um, keeps it interesting. It does keep it interesting. All right. Well, can you tell us about your professional career then? Of course, Jola. Well, it's been, a, it's been a very, it's been one of those times where, you know, I just started off as this, this kid that just punched out a psychology degree and ended up in insurance, actually. And what I understood as I worked in the insurance industry all those many years ago was all the injuries coming in from workplaces. And, you know, with my psychology background, I was on the psychological injury portfolio, which is what we called it back then. And uh, that's what sparked the interest in me is why are these injuries happening? So I went through the whole gamut of working with insurers. I was working for rehabilitation providers, but still the gap wasn't closing. So that's what sort of spat me out about five years ago where I went, right, it's time to start closing some gaps and bringing some systems into workplaces. So, uh, and that's when I started Anafree Consulting about five years ago. Uh, basically, as we were talking about before, guys, trying to uncomplicate the complicated to make easy and digestible systems for people to, you know, start to get things right rather than just winging it, as I like to say, because right now the country is just winging it uh, because there's not enough education or regulation around how do we manage people that are unwell? How do we prevent people from becoming unwell in workplaces? And that's what makes me tick. Fantastic. Well, we're, um, I think you're reading out of our playbook a little bit there, but that's all right. <laughs> Where was the playbook? I never got sent a playbook. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, listening to what you like to listen to on podcasts, where you like to think differently. Uh, I don't think you'd like our podcast too much because I think we probably think very similarly <laughs> about a, a number of things. Um, so tell us a bit about more about your consulting work. You know, what does a, a mental health consultant do? Right. Well, a mental health consultant really is an entire gamut of where do you start and where do you stop? So a mental health consultant can come in at any stage. And but primarily at the moment where we're sitting as, as, a, as, a, as a country is I'm, I'm recruited or brought on or consulted or sourced when people are reacting. All right. So the horse has bolted. Something really traumatic has happened or a series of injuries or similar injuries are occurring and they're like, right, how do we fix it? Uh, And what 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 my goal is and what my aim is, and this will take time to do, is to be engaged more in the preventative space. And I know, Jason, this is a big, uh, very dear to your heart and very passionate, but we are so far from people prioritising prevention as we're still living in reaction. So I can be brought in from how do we recruit someone that's mentally unwell How do we have care conversations? How do we educate leaders to identify, monitor and respond to people becoming unwell in the workplace? 
It can range from how do we performance manage someone that's potentially mentally unwell and how does that happen from a, a liability or legal sense? How do we write a policy? What does a good, effective, grunty policy look like? Because we all know the word policy just gives us goosebumps because we think of pages and pages and pages of garble. And, you know, if you're becoming unwell in the workplace or managing someone that's potentially becoming unwell in the workplace, we need something easy and digestible and human to follow. Uh, and then to the pointier end of, you know, obviously educating employees and, and, and leaders and, and executives, uh, there's the critical end. So um, what keeps me very busy, particularly last year, uh, whilst we're in the height of, of COVID in 2020, was a critical incident response. So what that means is if someone's showing someone, someone's showing signs of uh, forming a, a critical event, so whether it's uh, threats of suicide, whether it's uh, you know a panic attack in the workplace, or whether it's a psychotic episode, helping organisations understand how they can effectively respond. I say I always say reducing the flashing lights. So there's systems and ways that we can bring the human back to respond better where we have a safer outcome and also preserve the dignity of those people that are having episodes in workplaces. And then that pointier end gets pointier when an actual traumatic event has occurred. And I'll be quite blunt here, when someone has taken their life, what keeps me very busy is a lot of people tend to do that in workplaces and how to help people recover from that. But just to be clear, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I help companies understand how they should respond. I don't treat people. I just give them systems. Yeah, and that systems is important. And I can imagine during COVID uh, and the mental health impacts that, you know, the additional pressures of that macro event were having on people's mental health and well-being, uh, that you that would have been a hot topic or a hot, hot um, piece of consultation uh, request that you were getting. It, it, it was it was a hot topic, um, Jason. But what I, what I love, I call it the double-edged sword, right? It, is it, it took a pandemic to actually make workplaces sit up and go, "Geez, mental health is pretty bloody important," right? So, and and the double-edged sword is so many people had to founder as a result of us taking it seriously. So, it was a very mixed, very high-pressure year in the space of workplace mental health. But yes, you're right, Jason. There was a lot of attention around people that had taken their lives or had threatened to take their lives and companies just did not know what to do. So they're on the phone, they're calling the police, they're calling ambulances and there's better and more effective ways to do that. Again, to preserve the dignity of those people because we want people to be able to come back to work safely and with dignity and you know, being chucked in the back of a paddy wagon unnecessarily because it's the only thing we know how to do is not preserving uh, proper mental health risk management in workplaces. So it was a really complex and high pressure, but yet gratifying year as well because we did have the opportunity to save a lot of people's lives and jobs. So very gratifying. Yeah, great work. Now clearly you understand systems as well and, and the uh, importance of psychosocial risk management um, over in New South Wales. Obviously you've had the code of practice around psychological health at work um, be released recently. Um, yeah. What are, you know, what have you heard from companies so far regarding that? Anything or you know, is there um, any, any piece around psychosocial risk management where you're being asked for consulting um, experience? Look, it's really early days with the release of the codes of practice from Safe Work um, because they really only came into play sort of mid to late May. So to be honest with you, Jason, when I'm actually working with clients or, you know, uh, promoting videos on LinkedIn, bringing those thought bubbles and the education piece to the community, a lot of people are like, what? What do you mean it's law now? 
So, you know, it's, it's the classic piece around when, when legislation's launched and embedded, uh, the, the communication's quite uh, thin on ground. So it's really a surprise to a lot of people. So it's been really, particularly the last couple of months, has just been a series of education sessions to actually make people understand that mental health isn't a nice to have anymore. I don't have to sit up in boardrooms and convince people that they need this. They actually have to have it now. And it will be very, very soon where a multitude of states follow suit. So no, Jason, there's been very low rumblings. It's really just been a bit of a surprise factor for a lot of people that actually happen to not know about it. Yeah, so New South Wales are obviously the first to produce their code of practice. Uh, I believe Queensland and Victoria are looking, um, you know, in the coming um, months or in the next six to 12 months to release their own codes of practice. And that's all to support the, um, obviously the current legislation um, exists to protect worker health, both physically and mentally already. Um, but we know with the updates to the WHS Act that there's going to be regulations that deal more specifically with psychological injury. So um, uh, we're, we're already starting to see, Joel and myself, in conversations that we're having around the place that people are starting to get prepared for that expected change to, to legislation. So it is becoming more of a burning bridge, thankfully, where yeah. companies just aren't going to be looking at the reactive. But, hey, we actually do have a duty of care. Um, to protect worker well-being and we do need to start with risk management and not just focus on individuals and symptoms and you know the reactive uh, type activities. Uh, absolutely and and through no fault of anyone's own either it's just it's just the environment to which you know industry stands right now I mean mental health is where physical safety was 30 years ago so we're, we're, we're at the start of that burning bridge uh, and there's some risks involved in that as well because what we want to do, and I know that Jason, you, you know, at, at Flourish DX are very passionate about this, is we don't educate about psychosocial risk management unless it's effective, unless it's sustainable and implemented and becomes part of the bloodline of an organisation. One of the risks we're facing, and it's just a natural industry or human reaction, is when someone has to do something, they're going to run and they're going to bolt and they're going to want that ticker box approach. And again, there's going to be a lot of risks about whether psychological or mental risk management in workplaces is going to be effective. Yeah, that's it. I mean, there's some tools, obviously, that are freely available, um, but you, I do see um, some organisations jumping into that going, oh, yeah, we've done our risk assessment now. Um, and, and that's it. They don't yeah. understand that this is actually part of, like you say, it has to be part of your regular activities. It's got to be embedded in your safety management system. It's got to be embedded in policy. It's something. It's got to be something that drives continuous improvement, not just a one-off. Hey, we've done a survey. We've we've met our, our obligations, which yeah. they have. They haven't really just by doing that. No, absolutely not. Because you know you run that survey again in six months, and if there's no measurable improvement, then there's going to be you know some considerable chances to be able to well, potentially breaching law. And I just get excited by saying that, breaching law. I wish we were saying it 10 years ago with mental health, right? So, um, and I don't mean to be a taskmaster or a fearmongerer, but, you know, we, we, we do want to prevent and support industry from potentially breaching law. But we want to make sure in the meantime that this just doesn't become a code. It becomes better practice for people so we save lives and jobs. Well, you're absolutely right, right? The reason it's becoming, um, it has been like legislation for a while, but the reason it's becoming more prominent is that the most popular approaches in workplaces, again, I've spoken about fruit bowls and yoga and you know mindfulness apps and those sort of things, they don't work. 
Um, and because they're well marketed and obviously they're doing a better job at marketing than safe work New South Wales is on the current code of practice, you know, people are going, well, that's how we manage mental health in the workplace. It's not about risk management. Um, and so, you know, if this becomes law and, you know, we have best practice standards and we're going to talk about ISO 45,003 in a moment as well, you know, this is the most effective way to deal with mental health in the workplace. And it's actually the only employer obligation, um, uh, employers are not obligated to treat individuals who have a mental illness. They're not obligated to provide mindfulness training That's sessions right. and that sort of thing, but they are obligated to create a healthy and safe work environment. Um, so yeah, no, uh, it, I think it's a pity that it has to come down to law, but I think at least the legal framework that um, companies are going to be asked to adopt um, is best practice and it's going to be more effective. And I, and I do legitimately believe that most organizations want to do what's right for their people to just you know, sold the wrong information, if you like. I agree. Uh, you know, you, you both asked me, you know, what keeps me busy and what do I do as a consultant? And I actually didn't manage this bit, but a lot of my time is standing in boardrooms, convincing trusts and boards about why they need to have this. So that that level, that that's going to become very a very low product <laughs> in my line of work now because, you know, that's, it's exhausting trying to understand or convince people or show them whether it's from a human perspective or a bottom line production perspective about why we need this and how effective it can be yeah. as far as, as far as protecting people like Jason, I think you took a word out of my playbook before, and that is, you know, we, we, we can't, we're unable to sustain a mentally healthy workplace environment with meditation and yoga and fruit boxes, you know, it's, and I don't mean to be sound condescending, but I'm, I'm a pretty blunt person. And, you know, that's nice. Those things are nice, but they're not mitigating risk. And I'm actually glad that it is law because what industry has been screaming out for is, okay, if we need to do this, how do we do it? Mm. No one's known the how. We know there's a problem. And I have sat around a multitude of conferences. I've spoken at three quarters of them, listening to people tell us that there is a problem. But very few people are getting up on those stages showing us how to fix it. Yeah, we've been hearing it's a problem for the last decade. Yeah. <laughs> there's not enough solutions. And obviously that's what Joelle and I are very keen on, like yourself, in providing solutions and distilling that information. I mean, even something like a code of practice that SafeWork New South Wales have produced is supposed to be, hey, this is how you meet your obligations. But still, it scares people off, you know, these things, you know, it's too hard, right? They still need it to be distilled further. Yeah, absolutely. So you can tick those boxes and, and make sure that you have met the requirements of those codes of practice, but then how do you sustain it ongoing? Mm. And how, how often do we, do we audit? And how often do we recheck or re-measure? How often do we get that pulse check on how people are, are truly doing? And, and the risk mitiga mitigation strategies that we've introduced are they working? Mm. Because I want industry to be prepared. There's going to be a bucket load of people that claim that they have solutions. Just make sure you choose the right people that have the right ones. Yeah. Mm. So I think this um, is probably a good um, segue to talk about the new ISO standard 45003 because that obviously um, gives organisations a map of how to integrate um, psychological health and safety um, into their safety management system. And so it does actually, you know, go right from the, you know, planning and 
making sure that you've got the right policies in place and you've got the competencies that you need across the organisation as well as the hazard identification and risk management piece and then through to the sort of continuous improvement aspects of that. So, you know, I think the um, that standard is a really good guide for organisations who do actually want to do this well and it does sort of step it out for them in, in you know, how do you, how do you integrate this into your system so that it does actually happen um, when it needs to happen. Um, one of the um, elements of that standard that I wanted to talk with you about was the um, emergency preparedness and response piece where um, it recommends that um, psychosocial risk should be considered um, in emergency preparedness and response plans. Can you um, give our listeners a bit of an explanation as to why that's necessary? It's a- absolutely. So in an emergency response, I mean, it, it kind of dials back to the critical incident um, conversation that we're having before. What we know, and you know, I don't mean to, to, to bombard our listeners with a bunch of stats, but you know, we've got you know, 2 million Australians with diagnosable, diagnosed anxiety, and they're just the ones that have sought a diagnosis. We've got 1 million Australians, which is not the correct figure because, again, underreported, that have depression. So emergency preparedness and critical incident response preparedness is vital because it is absolutely increasing. I mean, we've just gone from eight to nine people um, a day losing their lives to suicide, and that is an emergency. So it's important that companies have a system that actually helps them firstly advertise or advocate rather what an emergency looks like. What is, an, what, is, what is an emergency when it comes to psychosocial risk? Is it someone that's so unwell that makes a poor decision and it results in human error and then injury? Or is it someone actually having a mental health critical incident, which I said before, can look like suicidality, an anxiety attack first time or repeated, or again, a, a, a psychotic episode. So it's really important to have that emergency risk because it's not just about the person that's unwell. It actually has a knock-on safety effect of those people around them or first responders, as I like to call them, where, you know, it's not just one life at risk here. It can be a multitude. And also the knock-on effect of making poor decisions in the heat of the moment can have huge um, litigious and liability impacts on organisations. And what about the, I guess, um, so that, that, you know, you're talking about people having a, um, a mental health emergency or a, or a psychological crisis. But I think there's also a, you know, um, mental health consequences associated with other types of emergency scenarios. So, you know, if, if there is an accident where there is sort of significant physical trauma and people have been witness to that, or, you know, there's, there's a, you're on a platform and there's a gas release and ignition and you're sort of hiding behind the firewall, hoping to hell that it doesn't, you know, fail, um, there's all of those sorts of, of aspects as well. So there's mental health consequences of, um, you know, sort of physical emergencies as well. Absolutely. Uh, I myself was uh, personally involved in the Burke Street incident in Melbourne. And, um, and I will talk about this respectfully because a lot of my dear colleagues and friends were actually physically injured in that particular event. And what was interesting to know was to observe the organisation that I was contracted to at the time um, did an outstanding job at how to to filter down the knock-on effect or the psychological impact of people witnessing trauma and what that looks like. So in this particular incident, 
this particular organisation had um, a, a risk management scale. So we had people that were immediately traumatised. We had people that were showing trauma two to four weeks later. And then we had people eliciting trauma eight to three months later. And they were measured on a scale and monitored. So it was a really clever way to be able to prepare for an emergency. But can I say that this organisation was prepared for the magnitude of that? No. But it was a really clever way. And I would love to take that particular scale and show all industries that that's what they need to do. But also, it's going to vary from industry to industry as well. Only slightly. The basic methodology of emergency management systems will stay the same. But it just depends on what level of risk that industry is exposed to and what the likelihood of, you know, take a classic risk management matrix. What's the likelihood of an event happening? And then what, what occurs after that? But that's the thing about psychosocial or psychological response to things like trauma uh, is that it's not a one, one size fits all and companies and organisations and industry need to be prepared for that. The story that I have here is that this particular organisation had EAP on site after the Burke Street incident. Now that EAP person was in a room all day, five days a week and probably spoke to four people. By the eight week mark, she was booked out. So it's really interesting and it's really important that industries understand what psychosocial risk management looks like and they're educated in the fact of what a response to a traumatic event or a personal critical event looks like across the entire gamut because it's not just one system. There's a lot of work to be done in the area. Yeah, well, that's a fantastic example. Um, would you say that that's sort of something that most organisations are across or is this sort of a new concept for, for them in your experience? My blunt response would be absolutely not, guys. <laughs> um, again, it, it comes back to our original conversation at the beginning is that we're, we're all reactive when it comes to, to, to mental health, regardless about whether it's a personal event or whether it's a traumatic event or a community event. Um, it, we, we've got so much work to do and that's why I'm so excited about um, you know, the codes of practice and also, you know, the ISO 45 is it's going to teach people finally about what it actually looks like and the size and scale of what we need to do to prepare for emergency risk management. Mm. Um, so you gave us a, a really good example there of, of how an organisation managed a, um, a traumatic event. Have you got any other examples where you've seen it sort of done well? No, no, I actually don't. And that because... I only happened to be con contracted to this particular company when this event happened. Um, so when it, when it comes to, you know, fire exposure or oil and gas and so forth, no, I actually haven't been there. That's just my prime, primary, primary reason. But a lot of my colleagues around the circuit and a lot of my other mental health consultant colleagues have a variety of stories uh, where, where it comes to, you know, an explosion or, 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 or a terrorist incident uh, where they've just sort of flailed. I mean, I'm going, to, I'm going to sound a bit dramatic as well and a, a bit unlucky, actually, because I was, I was caught up in the, in the Lint Cafe siege as well, um, not, not directly within the red zone, but just out. So naturally, this, this particular company that I was working for here was, um, you know, they just sort of went into lockdown and they didn't know what to do. And that's okay because everyone's just doing the best that they can on the day. But afterwards was a bit of a mishmash, like how do we keep an eye on people that are 
that are becoming unwell and then watching the pattern after that event, you know, resignations uh, increased, workers' compensation claims came in and they're like, well, why are these coming in? That incident was like three months ago. So again, it comes down to understanding what mental health is and how it works in order to be prepared for it in any event at any time. And I think that you've really hit the nail on the head there in terms of the, um, you know, the competencies that organisations actually need um, around understanding mental health, understanding how psychological disorder manifests and develops over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I think the different functions in the organisation where that competence is necessary and, you know, the, um, the different um, systems that those functions have ownership of. So if you think about, you know, human resources, you think about, um, you know, your sort of injury management functions um, mm-hmm. as well as your OHS functions, you know, these groups all really need to have a good understanding, um, not necessarily of, of treatment, but of what these things actually look like, what's the, what's the progression pattern look like and, you know, at what points do we actually need to um, have triggers in our systems to sort of check in and intervene and, and provide that support. Absolutely. What we need to do is redefine what responsibilities of those particular units are. One of the major downfalls across many, many industries is those very important functions, human resources, safety and risk management and injury management teams all do a great job within their insular scope. But when I step into a company and I'm like, okay, so when do HR and risk and safety all meet together? But it always seems to be separate along this continuum of, okay, it's gone through the HR now and now it goes to safety and now it goes to risk. It really needs to be a unified function, uh, which is a really good start to start to, to start improving um, emergency and risk mitigation when it comes to psychosocial risk management. That's just one thing that, I've, that I always see. It doesn't matter what organisation I'm working with, they always operate separately. I mean, for the exception of those that are on a smaller scale where people are performing dual roles. So you will have a, a human resource person that's also the injury management person. Uh, but uh, that's that's one thing that I think industry need to really take a look at and go, okay, how do these really important functions work as a moving part? Yeah, it's almost like they need sort of a dedicated liaison position in each of those teams for, for those um, situations where there is that necessary overlap. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's just, there's just not enough communication across these important functions that are virtually doing the same thing. And that is managing humans, right? Uh, but it just seems to be like a process factory. You go through the motions and the, then you, you end up at, you, I've been through safety, I've been through risk, and now we're at the, the pit end here at Human Resources. And then it's, a, it's, it's potluck about whether it's managed well or not. But the sad thing is that a lot of people don't have the education to be able to effectively mitigate psychosocial risk. So unfortunately, and I always say this, when I look at the amount of mental injury claims that are across this country, I can always advocate that 80% of them shouldn't have even been there. Yeah, and I think that um, a, a large part of that is that, you know, your sort of safety and risk functions are actually left out of this conversation around psychological health and safety, um, that it does tend to get put to HR um, who have you know, if I'm talking in generalisations and please excuse me, HR professionals who do get involved from a proactive perspective, um, you're excused from this part of the conversation. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that a lot of HR policy is reacting after something has happened. 
you know, right. okay, we'll, we'll write a policy saying you're not allowed to do this or this is what you're expected to do. Mm-hmm. But then there's not a lot between setting behavioural expectations and then reacting after the fact. And I think that that's sort of the gap where, where the safety and risk functions really need to come in and say, well, this is actually how we identify um, hazards and, and minimise the risks associated with those hazards. I think that that's really a significant piece of the um, psych health and safety puzzle that's missing for most organisations. I think you've absolutely nailed it. And I'm, I'm going to dial it back even a bit further. One of my questions is, okay, you've contracted me. I'm here to help you. Can I have a look at your mental health policy? Mm. They're like, we don't have one. Or there's a one-liner in their existing archaic safety 42-page 407 clause, uh, we do care about your mental health, but that's it. Whereas if I was going to be physically protected in an organisation, I would have 42 pages to read. This is how I avoid becoming injured. This is how I can prevent becoming injured. So my question to organisations is why don't you have this as far as psychosocial risk or a mental health policy? If you're becoming unwell, this is what we do. This is who you can speak to. Here's what's available. But also people that do have, and I mean this respectfully because a lot of proactive industries are, are introducing mental health policies, there's a really big piece that's missing. And this is a really controversial topic, but I like, you know, ruffling feathers a bit. And that is, okay, well, you're going to bend over backwards and support this unwell person. But what's the responsibilities of the unwell person? Oh, but we can't we can't give someone that's unwell responsibilities. We just have to look after them. And I'm like, well, well, no, because if I fall down a set of stairs and break my leg, I've got responsibilities to report in, give you access to my treating providers, make sure that you've got the information you need to create an environment where I can recover sustainably. The same deal for mental health. But, but a lot of industry are under the impression that that's the wrong thing to do or it's against the law or it's discrimination. But really, if I'm becoming unwell, mentally unwell in an organisation, I want to know what's available for me, what's the attitude of the organisation, but also what do I need to do? And yep. that's, that's, that's one piece that's missing out of policy. Yeah, I totally agree. I've seen that many times um, where you'll have someone who's been off work for you know, months and mm. uh, a manager will be kind of complaining about, oh, you know, this person, I think they're just pulling the piss. <laughs> and, yeah. and you're like, well, what's their treatment plan? Like, what, how, how are you going to get them back to work? Um, and they're like, oh, we don't have a treatment plan. We don't, there's no oversight. There's, there's nothing right. Whereas, as you say, if it's a physical injury, yeah, someone has to go see the physio. They have to go see the doctor. You know, they have to make attempts to get better and we'll give them light duties so they can come back to work so they can still participate in the workplace, maybe not at their normal function or or what they normally do, but they're still coming into work. And we know that, you know, well-designed work is, uh, is good for people and good for people's mental health. Um, Which actually brings us to to the next part of the conversation I wanted to get onto Anna. It's actually a nice segue. Um, The the ISO 45003 standard does include a section on rehabilitation and, and return to work. And um, got me thinking uh, about something that Peter Kelly said on our recent live panel around uh, the sick goldfish in a, in a dirty pond. Uh, you don't just take the goldfish out of the pond and ask them to be more resilient and then put them back in the dirty pond. <laughs> you exactly. got to clean the filter first of the pond, right? And improve yeah. the, the conditions before you put them back in. So um, with that in mind, uh, talking about rehabilitation and return to work, you know, what does a good rehab and return to work process look like for someone who's experienced that psychological injury? 
Well, it's a really good question. And there's two parts. Uh, are we talking about someone that's identified something before it becomes an event? Like there's a, there's a prevention approach and a reaction approach, right? Uh, but for this, for the sake of that question, Jason, I'll focus on the reaction. So let's just say the horse has bolted, right? And I love the dirty pond analogy. Um, I love the fact that, you know, people will call me and they're like, Anna, we need resilience training. Come and make, make our people resilient. And then I'll walk in and see the poorest designed workplace ever. And I'm like, well, tell me, what do you want them to be resilient for? <laughs> you know, so we're, we are tucking that fish back in the dirty pond. Um, but a good, a good rehabilitation return to work uh, approach, firstly, is communication. It's the thing about mental health is when someone goes, oh, Anna's got a mental health injury, everyone just shuts up because they think that that's the respectful and the right thing to do because this big word privacy looms and continues to loom over mental health in workplaces, even down to a risk management system where they log an injury. I've seen risk management systems. We've got heart attacks, broken arms, uh, slips, trips, falls, stitches, and then there's this other box and there's all these people that are just in the other. How can we possibly rehabilitate or indeed mitigate risk if we don't know exactly what happened to whom and when and why? Oh, but we can't actually report that Anna had an anxiety attack at work because that's, that's private. Well, no, it's an injury or it's an event that's occurred in a workplace. And in order for us to keep Anna safe in the future, we need to understand what happened and what's needed. So that's, that's part one of my answer. Part two is we don't communicate enough because we're being private and respectful, but whereas in effect, that's the worst thing we can do. Silence is what's making mental health issues get bigger and better. Not better was the wrong word. Get, get, getting bigger and more bolstered because no one's intervening. No one's talking. What I've seen over the years, particularly with mental injuries in workplaces, is that everyone goes silent. So I'll say to an organisation, okay, Anna's been off now for three weeks in this very protected, silent mental health problem, which no one knows, the team doesn't know. And I'm not saying let's go and champion someone's injury all over the workplace. But my question is, when was the last time you spoke to Anna? Just to check in. How are you travelling? Here's an update from work. When do you think you're going to be back? Can we do anything for you? They're like, oh, we can't do that. She's got a mental health injury. Well, we can't talk to her. I might say or do the wrong thing. And so you've got someone that is incredibly unwell dealing with a bunch of people they don't know. Whereas, you know, we don't come to work and work for, and I mean this respectfully as well, as you said, Joel, to our HR professionals and our risk management professionals, half the people that are becoming unwell in workplaces have not even met these people, but they're, yeah, the one, they're the ones showing care and communication. Secondly, we can absolutely access their treating providers. You just need permission first. Because how can we re rehabilitate someone or indeed understand what work environment we need to apply or create without talking to the professionals, the qualified professionals that understand what status and capability level these people are at? So there is a huge lack of communication with treating providers. There's a huge lack of communication just with the unwell person at work anyway, because we're too scared to talk to them. And that's what an ineffective rehabilitation program looks like. So let's flip that just quickly. Stay in contact. People are like, I don't want to contact her too much. What if she gets upset? The easiest solution is talk to Anna. I mean, not as in my services, as in I'm pretending to be the unwell person here. 
How often would you like to be contacted, Anna? Because we really like to stay in touch because what we know is connectivity to the workplace improves return to work rates. We just need to open communication, seek permission and go from there. Speak to the worker, speak to the rehabilitation provider. And if you can, and if you have permission, speak to the family. The family or the emergency contacts are the most underrated and underutilised pieces of support in any workplace, particularly when it comes to critical incident management. And I don't mean to digress because I can hear myself tangenting a little bit, but talk to the person, get the family engaged if you can, get access to the treating providers, and also brief the manager of that person. Quite often, the managers have no idea what's going on. The person comes back to work. The manager's got no idea how to handle them. What happens? They go back off work. So managerial involvement as well. Mm. Um, I think an important aspect of that as well is, um, you know, thinking about the the hazards that were present in the workplace that led to that injury. Mm. Um, You know, are they going to be exposed to those hazards again when they return to work or you know what's what's been done about that and is it actually the manager themselves that's potentially the hazard for them could be and quite often it is and that's why it's important to be in contact with the treating providers what is the trigger here and then that's where industries can get support as well there's a multitude of rehabilitation providers out there that can come in and do a one-off assessment you don't have to pay them thousands and thousands of dollars and have them on your books for a year you just need someone else to come in that has the knowledge to go, okay, here's the medical report, here's what's happened, here's where potential triggers are, and they will come in and help you redesign a safer workplace. It's not always that easy, though, particularly for small to medium businesses where they've got a smaller headcount or a smaller FTE where, you know, one person is a particular tr- trigger for another, and that can get really tricky, but that's why they need external support. So contact any rehabilitation provider that can come in and do an assessment and go, here's what we need to do. And if it's unsolvable or you're unable to mitigate it, that's where you look at the the ongoing safety of that person in the workplace and other conversations can then take place about ongoing employment or redeployment. Um, Anna, I think most injury management professionals um, and health and safety people would understand the idea of light duties. Uh, If someone's had a physical injury, they are able to return back to work um, after receiving maybe some uh, some treatment. Yeah. Um, and, and it might be reduced hours. It might be that they can only lift a certain amount of weight. It might be that they can only sit down or stand up for certain periods of time. You know, mm-hmm. those are uh, controls that are put in place to make sure that we're not exacerbating the pre-existing injury, right? But the yeah. person is able to come back to meaningful work. What would be some examples um, in a mental injury case when someone's coming back to work um, of, of light duties or um, modifications that could be made to the work, the design of work to make sure that we're not exacerbating that psychological injury? Yeah, absolutely. Good question. So light duties can look like, well, firstly, we need to understand what happened. And that dials me back to, you know, if you're just shoving the injury into the other box in your risk management system, how can you possibly understand what you need to do in the workplace? But say that you do understand what's happened and we've got good access to um, the medical information about what this person's capabilities are. It might be exposure to light, noise, uh, work frequency and duration. So you might want to take a few tasks off the person. 
They might need to um, maybe if they're in a customer service facing role, they might need a bit of a break from that. So whether it's reducing their hours or their exposure to customer service, because we know that aggression in customer service is another huge, big psychosocial risk in our in all industries. Um, it can look like um, setting up a, and I, I really don't like this word, but I can't think of an alternative, maybe support persons better. But sometimes people don't feel comfortable going to their manager and that's okay, right? That's not, that's, that's just might be a personality clash or it might be an ego thing, right? I want to do well for my manager. So setting up some- They also might be the, the source of the hazard as well. That's so, exactly yeah. right, exactly right. So it's important to make sure that you set up other people that that person's comfortable with to maybe be reporting to for a while. Or even if they're starting to waver, someone they can go to outside of EAP or the direct manager would be really helpful. So, it, you know, there really isn't a lot difference when it comes to physical light duties and, and mental light duties or mental health or poor mental health light duties. It's just understanding what their capability is, what their capacity is, and how to mitigate that. So is it reduction of workload? Is it change of workload? Is it change of environment? Or is it change of reporting systems or people that they're working alongside of? Yeah, and that comes down to the risk assessment piece, right? What was the thing that caused the psychological injury in the first place and make sure that we're dealing with that before returning them back to work, so. Cannot yeah. do it without the risk management assessment. It's impossible. Yeah. You're, just, you're guessing and you're winging it and you're hoping for the best. And that's where we've ended up, where we've ended up. Yeah. So what can be the consequences for, for people returning to work after a psychological injury if this process is not managed well? Well, and sadly to say in most instances it's the case, um, they either go back to unfit, so that means they're on claim and not at work at all, and goodness knows how long they can they can go for. We all know that mental injury claims are the most expensive. They're up to like nine to ten times more expensive than the average physical injury. Uh, there can be increased toxicity and conflict in the workplace. There can be increased psychological injuries with other co-workers because if this person's not behaving well, and we all know behaviour is, is a natural reaction from poor mental health, there's a chance that other people can become unwell. And one of the big ones is if they're not managed appropriately, it comes down to that human error. Poor decisions can be made, and that, that's, what, that's where it brings the physical safety game in. Physical safety and mental, mental, mental safety are not separate. They're one in the same. We are one human. <laughs> So we're risking physical safety, we're increased claims, increased toxicity, absenteeism, or again, if you want to get financial, it's going to impact your bottom line because they're going to be at work, unwell, giving you about 30%. So there's a lot of knock-on effects if we don't do the rehabilitation process and the risk management process properly, sustainably and effectively. And from your experience, do you see organisations that have good consideration of of psychosocial aspects in their return to work processes or is this something that they're only sort of just starting to think about it's something that they're only just starting to think about in my experience um, i'm sure that there are ex some exceptions to the rule but primarily 98 percent of people and in industry and companies i work with this is very green very raw territory they really don't have um, the education and the insight about what mental health is, let alone how to risk management appropriate, risk manage it appropriately. So it really, we really are at the at the starting line. That's why we've got to get it right now, and that's why I'm so excited uh, for all of these codes coming in 
and and also you know the the ISO forty five thousand. It's great. It's it's what we need. We've needed it for so long. And it's an interesting one to have that um, rehabilitation and return to work in forty five thousand and three because there isn't actually that that clause in the parent standard. So um, it's a I guess a bit of an exception um, within that that child standard that it goes um, further than than the requirements of the parent standard. Absolutely, because we really are in the old standard and basically it's it's pretty much commandeered by the workers compensation system right which you know can can significantly require some improvements in its own right without offending people but i probably have but um you know there's always room for improvement we need to change we need to actually understand what mental health and duty of care compliance looks like and how to do it and people are screaming out for it now particularly over the last 18 months and the, and the pandemic as well. It's really brought it to the forefront. So very timely. And that's why I'm so excited for you guys and all your all your education around ISO 45003 because it's so important and it's needed. And people will do things if they understand how to do it. Bottom line. You're, um, you made a, a comment there, Anna, that, you know, we're just at the start. It's funny, right, thinking back to uh, the management standard that the HSC produces, almost 20 years old now. But it does, <laughs> in a lot of respects, feel like we're just at the start and companies are starting to consider this. I do think ISO 45003 is really getting people to go, well, maybe this is a safety issue. Maybe we should be dealing with it under risk management rather than purely health promotion or, right. or reactive stuff. So, um, you know, given it's just the start, if you like, or it's really just becoming a, a priority or an interest area for companies to address in this way, what are your hopes for the future of workplace mental health? Uh, my hopes for the, the future of workplace mental health, firstly, is I just we just we just need to show people how to do it. And in the future, I want to move from reactive to preventative. That's, that's, that's the, I could rave on about it for hours, but that's my ultimate goal. I want to see managers in, in workplaces recognize signs earlier. I want risk management professionals in workplaces to understand what risks are and how to mitigate them better. I wanna see more care conversations come in. I wanna see more involvement with families come into the workplace. I want more dignity for people that are unwell in the workplace. And I want better injury management systems for people that have proceeded to injury and how we rehabilitate them. And the exciting thing is we've now got something other than a guideline to show us how to do that. My ultimate goal is to just see people be confident to speak up and understand when they're becoming unwell or understanding how other people are becoming unwell how to intervene, how to risk manage, how to monitor, and how to recover. Yeah, I think that's great. I think you're you're right in that we're kind of just doing a lot of this stuff. Um, and so there's just so much room for improvement. So uh, sky's really the limit in terms of the future for workplace mental health. Yeah, the sky is the limit. And it is exciting. It, it really is exciting. Um, I, I'm just sorry to all those that had to suffer so long beforehand, as we all are, but um, and, and that it's taken this long to have it put at the top of, of, of industry agenda, uh, but it is exciting times and there's so much work to do. And I'm just honored to be part of the mental health uh, consulting community that, that can help do that and help the industry achieve what they need to. And at the end of the day, they're gonna have, they're gonna produce better business. So you, do you have some words of advice for professionals who'd like to work in this field? Who would like to work in, in our field? Yes. <laughs> um, some advice. Well, firstly, look, it, it, it's a very complicated, it's a very complicated road, but if you want to work in this field, you have to have the ability, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, 
to want to uncomplicate the complicated, right? People are scared of mental health. You've got to have you've got to have incredible nous. You've got to have incredible respect. But guess what? You've got to have a sense of humor as well, because it's incredibly pokey topic. Uh, this this business of mental health. And if you want to get out there and make a change and help industry and help psychosocial risk improve, then you've got to have those those abilities to understand and get ready to fight because people are going to continue to resist regardless about how many codes and and compliance has come out. It's still something that is so misunderstood and in large pockets of our industry uh, disrespected that it's not only going into a company and doing a good job, it's about helping them understand and respect why they're doing it and why they need it. Yeah, absolutely. That was some great advice there. Thank you, Anna. No problem. Anna, it's been uh, an amazing conversation with you today. Um, it's strange. I think this is episode 40 uh, it'll end up being, and uh, it's the first time we've spoken about emergency preparedness and return to work. Um, both obviously critical elements of the new ISO 45003 standard, but um, I think you unpacked that really well for our listeners, um, both of those topics. So thank you so much for, for doing that today with us. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I'm just stoked that I made it the whole way through and didn't even swear once. I kind of feel like I've let the community down. <laughs> uh, we, we can go another episode without putting the E on we, the... Uh, we can. Yeah. We've, we've, I think we've had two, two maybe three. Yeah, we've bloody Clive. Two. Bloody Clive. <laughs> See, now, no, now bloody's we... <laughs> not. That's well, like that's part, of the, that's just part of an everyday English language now. If, it's fine. <laughs> if, if, if they can say bloody hell in Harry Potter... We, we can say yeah, it on our podcast sure, without yeah. calling it explicit, I say. We, yeah. Do it now, apologise later. Yeah. <laughs> so, Anna, tell, tell our listeners where they can find out a bit more about your uh, consulting work. Yeah, sure. So uh, for those of you tuning in, uh, if, you, if you need any support with whatever level of gamut that we've discussed today, and we've discussed a lot of them, uh, you, it's pretty simple. You can find me at www.annafaringa.com.au uh, and have a surfer on my website or just search for me on, on, on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find and um, all my contact details are available and the beautiful business manager of mine, um, Caroline Ballasty or myself, will uh, have a chat to you and see what you need. Terrific. Now, thank you so much, Anna. Um, well, that brings us to the end of the episode uh, today, listeners. Uh, remember, we do video these over Zoom. So if you want to check out the video rather than just listen to the podcast, you'll be able to access that on our YouTube channel for Flourish DX. Um, also, if you prefer a shorter kind of bite-sized segments rather than the long format podcast that we end up having, um, you can find on our Flourish DX LinkedIn page, little two to four minute clips, and there'll be quite a number we'll be able to choose from today. I think there's a great conversation today with Anna. So that was terrific. Uh, and like Anna, Joelle and myself are also very active on LinkedIn. So feel free to follow us or connect with us um, and continue the conversation there. Um, so thanks very much, listeners, and we'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.